0: Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yuri Ajoja. I'm with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University, and I'm joined today by
1: Giselle Donnelly from the American Enterprise Institute and
2: Dali Borohac, also from AEI.
0: On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that have erupted along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we have the privilege and honor to be joined by Mikolas Jurinda, the former Prime Minister of Slovakia. And I don't think he needs any further introduction, um, but I will lead um, to um, Dalibor, who will be channeling his Slovakian roots today. So Dali Dalibor, do you want to um, introduce?
2: Sure. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you so much, Julia. And it's a, it's an honor to, to have you on the on the show. Um, Prime Minister Zurinda is, of course, now the president of the Wilfred Martin Center for European Studies in Brussels, which is the official think tank of European People's Party. He is an avid runner. Unfortunately, we won't have time to talk about running on this episode. Uh, However, I was hoping we would talk a little bit about one um, one old chestnut that, that sort of persists in Western debates about uh, Eastern Europe and also about what's happening in, in Ukraine these days. There are, unfortunately, those in the West who still continue to blame Russian aggression against Ukraine on NATO enlargements, which supposedly were provocative, supposedly broke promises extended by previous US administrations to the Soviets and and Russians, um, and that encroached supposedly on legitimate Russian security interests. Uh, I think that story is wrong as a matter of historical record, but more importantly, from our perspective, it leaves completely out the role and motivation of Eastern Europeans who who sought to join NATO and and just leaves out completely Central and Eastern Europe as an as an actor in its in its own right. So I thought it would be really helpful to to bring in somebody like Prime Minister Zurinda to talk about uh the events that led to in this case Slovakia's accession to NATO. Um Uh, Mr. Zurinda became prime minister in 1998. At the time, Slovakia was excluded from the initial wave of both EU and NATO enlargements. And it was really an existential struggle for for Slovaks to catch up with their neighbors, to join the alliance, to join the the EU. And I don't think it's quite appreciated in the West uh, how important um, that accession was for for, for, for Slovaks and Central and Eastern Europeans in, in general. So I think it would be helpful for you to, to, to tell us a little bit about why it mattered so much and also what steps you took as a matter of practical politics in order to get through all the, all the obstacles, domestic and international, that were in the way of, of, of Slovakia's at the time, uh, EU and NATO accession.
3: Thank you very much, Dalibor. Thank you for being invited and thank you all for being interested in the case of Central Europe and Ukraine of these days, even though we all know that it is not only the case of Ukraine or Central Europe, but it is a global challenge or case. Look, Dalibor, I was only 13 years old when the Soviet Union occupied the the then Czechoslovakia. And, you know, my parents were teachers. But due to their wish to practice uh, their religion, they were not allowed to teach. So I understood uh, since the beginning that I am something like a citizen citizen of uh, of the second class. I learned very, very early that uh, yearning for freedom is forbidden uh, under tyranny. So for me, it was something uh, like a lesson learned that there is only one chance if my daughter, my son, my, my children, myself, if we, if we want to live in freedom, if we want to have a future, there is only one option left, to join NATO, to join the EU, to join democracies and Western community. With this understanding, I jumped into politics after the Velvet Revolution in the then Czechoslovakia. As you mentioned, in 1997, I was very, very sad, very uh, depressed due to the fact that Czech Republic, Poland and Hungary were invited to join. Slovakia was excluded. Madeleine Albright, who very recently passed away, she described rightly Slovakia as a black hole of Europe. So when we, won, we, when we uh, had decided to run an election, it was the, the programming goal number one, to delete this black hole and to join NATO and the EU. Thanks God, we won with substantial, vast majority, with constitutional majority. But then it was only the beginning of story. Only the beginning story. I remember when I, when I met with President Clinton for the first time after a few months being in, in office, I asked Mr. President, Slovakia wants to delete this black hole and join NATO. And do you know the answer? He said to me, well, sir, that's a good intention, but you have missed the train, it was a bit depressing for me, and I tried to fight with him, arguing that also Slovenia or Baltic states want to join. And he answered, when it comes to the Baltic states, Russia will never allow it. Can you imagine? It was, it was March uh, 1999. Thanks God, in five years, we both, including uh, Romania, Bulgaria, we, we have joined the NATO. And only in these days, by the way, yesterday it was exactly 18 years when we have joined the NATO. But only in these days, the Slovak people on the streets meeting me are telling, thank you, sir, for being in. Thank you for this security umbrella above, above our heads. Only in these days, we all realize how important it was. So, when I am reading, also especially coming uh, wh- when it comes to the United States, when I am reading that it is NATO who is responsible for, uh, for the war in Ukraine, uh, I, am, I, am, I am very, very unhappy because I have never felt like the U.S. was pushing us into NATO. On the contrary, (laughs) I was pushing both Clinton and Bush Jr. to accept us. And, you know, aggressiveness of Putin stem from tyranny, not from NATO enlargement. His problem is Russia. His problem is uh, his understanding that a spark from Euromaidan can one day jump to the Red Square in Moscow. This is the problem of Mr. Putin, not a behavior of NATO or Ukraine.
0: I think you set the record straight here with as clear words as possible, but I guess a follow-up question is, based on what Dalibor was asking, to what extent do you evaluate this divide still happening with some Western Europeans and pundits across the transatlantic space continuing to argue um, beyond the polls that um, it um, it is a matter of the United States and the West on one side and Russia on the other side leaving Central and Eastern Europe now as a group um, without actorness or agency, you mentioned at some point that you realized you're a second-class citizen. A few years ago, when I was living in Berlin, I was invited to a panel by one of the bigger um, German publications called "Central and Eastern Europeans: Second-Class Citizens?" question mark And of course, that was a huge problem um uh, my reaction was not as strong <laughs> as as others um uh to that title but um but but that reveals some of the divides that we have and then to add to that to what extent when we're looking at a european security Um, To what extent do we feel those of us who um, were lucky enough to join 18 years ago, um, to what extent do, do we feel that our security interests overall are being embraced. I remember in um, 2016, the new security strategy of the European Union, years before many of us had worked towards the fact that the new member states of the European Union would be able to trickle in their threat perceptions, of course, vis-a-vis Russia. So with all that in mind, now in 2022, five weeks into um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, to, to what extent do you see in the middle of Europe being and now a part, a legitimate part of the West, um, do you do you see these divisions um still standing and this misunderstanding still being pushed by um opinion leaders that um that there are differences in in the legitimacy of threat perceptions between the West and Central and Eastern Europe?
3: I don't think so that in these days it is so dramatic. On the contrary, the war or the aggression of Russia against Ukraine help uh, not only to unite us, but also to understand a bit better each other than before. Uh, I was in Berlin as well just before the pandemic and, and meeting people in Berlin, the leaders in Berlin, Annegret kramp Bauer at the time. I felt that there is some frustration due to the development in Poland when it comes to rule of law uh, or in Hungary when it comes uh, to the approach towards liberal democracy principles and so on, independence of media, academia and so on. Or when it comes to immigration, you know very well that that we were a bit reluctant towards people coming from Afghanistan, uh, from Syria. Uh, We were very resistant when it comes to uh, compulsory quotas implementation, for instance. But in these days, look at Poland, look at Slovakia. We are receiving a lot of people fleeing Ukraine, a lot of people much more per capita than in case of Germany, for instance, already now. And we do that without any single uh, blame or, or you know, special demands on the EU or uh, United States. I'm really thrilled by this understanding. So in these days, I have a good feeling, you know, there is a proverb in Slovakia, Dal- Dalibor knows very well, so everything bad comes with something good. In this case, what is good is our mutual understanding that we all are on the same boat. And now we, Central Europeans, the Slovaks, Slovenians, uh, the Poles, the Czechs, this is our turn, not to demonstrate, but just to show our determination, our commitment, our willingness, our, our solidarity. And it helps. Well, there are some differences. Some people are calling for more United States. Some people, including myself, we are calling for more European engagement. But, but as a part of NATO, as a eastern flank of NATO, but these differences are not substantial uh, ones. I am pretty happy that in these days we speak with one voice, Europe, the United States. I don't see there is any special division line between older members of NATO or younger members of NATO. As I said, everything bad comes with something good. Let's believe that this unity will continue because there are many, many elements which can lead to Ukraine fatigue, for instance, or to different view how to continue with our support to Ukraine. Some people are calling for fighters, for some anti-missile equipments. Some people are thinking that it it would be good to introduce a no-fly zone, if not completely, uh, maybe... The western part of Ukraine deserves that, uh, so and so on, and so on. But I strongly believe that we are clever and responsible enough to deal with these slight differences.
1: I would agree that that things are moving in the right direction and have been moving in the right direction for, for some time and sort of roughly in a north to south way, because uh, certainly the uh, agency of the Baltic states over the last five or 10 years can't be denied. The poles are are driving the train as much as anybody is um, at the moment. So um, since I'm Little Miss Sunshine on the Eastern Front, uh, I always have to look uh, for the ray of sunshine. And I have another one that I wanted to uh, uh, raise. and that was a, a story I read recently about internal polling in Slovakia, um, basically saying that at the beginning of the war, there was re- the uh, plurality of Slovaks um, were sort of pro-Russian or very skeptical of uh, who was responsible for the war. But uh, a more recent follow-up poll found 60% or plus uh, who have changed their opinions and are now anti-Russian, uh, Mikulas, Would you confirm that, and can you explain it for us? Absolutely.
3: I thank you very much for this uh, understanding or uh, your attention on that. Look, when uh, I took the power in October 1998, I am not mis- if I am not mistaken that the support for NATO aspiration in Slovakia was around 28, 29%. Can you imagine? Just I did the same result uh, in elections. <laughs> so, but uh, within a few months, uh, this uh, this uh, feeling or preferences had been completely changed. And when we joined NATO, the support for our NATO membership, membership was around 65, 67, 68%. I am speaking about the leadership. If there is a leader with very clear position and I would say courageous enough to talk to people and not only via social media, but also uh, going to the streets or square, meeting people and being strong, clear, committed, uh, I believe that it is possible. Well, in democracy, you have to listen to people. But on the other side, a political leadership is also needed. And it has happened in these days in Slovakia. It was just maybe two months ago when foreign minister of my country, a friend of mine, Ivan Korchok, called me that, Mikulas, there is a problem because uh, the CA, the defense and security agreement with the United States, should be signed. And we are, we are not united enough in the governmental coalition because you follow the situation, you know very well that the coalition is pretty pretty broad, wide in, 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 in my home in these days. I had a very intense discussion with the foreign minister, telling Ivan, your time, this is your turn. Don't don't worry. Go ahead. Stand up. Now, now is time for leadership. This is a real crossroad. And after two hours of our discussions, I met completely new foreign minister of Slovakia, courageous clear, and it was substantial. Then he was followed by defense minister, then he was followed by the prime minister. I criticized my president, fantastic lady, dedicated democrat, but she came with uh, an idea to join the the agreement with the interpretation uh, explanation. So I I was really uh, furious. Do we need to explain something to our American allies? This is a normal habit or, you know, behavior between the substantial strategic allies. And then she changed as well her vocabulary. So all these together, decisiveness, commitment, clear speech, leadership, at the end of the day, change the situation and the attitude of people, really, without, without during a few days. And I am, I am happy uh, because of it, because it shows that the Slovaks, in the vast majority, we are the Democrats. We are normal, clever people. We can distinguish who is uh, an aggressor, aggressor and who is a, a victim. Let's believe it will continue. But now I am, I am much more optimistic than before. Half a year ago, if you asked me whether the Slovaks would accept American soldiers or equipment in our territory, I would hesitate with my answer. In these days, no problem. This is really great.
1: I think it might be a good idea to sort of step back and explain. You know, there's still a residual attitude in the United States, in the West, that somehow Eastern Europeans... um, don't fully understand don't haven't are acculturated to democratic practices i mean maybe i'm overstating it uh for dramatic effect but this is sort of a prejudice that that westerners have against uh, uh our neighbors uh in central and eastern europe and and you make such a compelling case that this is not true Uh, So I ask you to speak not only for Slovaks, but for for others and maybe make Americans understand a little bit better the nature of uh, the desire for freedom that uh, your compatriots have.
3: Yeah, the nature for freedom comes from our past. We spent uh, several decades uh, under the tyranny, under the communist oppression and uh, dictatorship. Uh, on, the, on, on the case of my parents, I wanted to uh, reveal this uh, religious dimension of freedom. But it was not only the, uh, a question of, of uh, religious. There was also the question to express freely your opinion on politics, on economic development, on social issues. We were not free. And it was a case. It was a case in Poland, in uh, Eastern Germany, in Hungary, Czechoslovakia. So, this was uh, the substance the yearning to be free. Well, after joining the Western community, we did some not very nice steps, especially in Hungary. I am very, very disappointed by the behavior, political behavior of Viktor Orban, my old friend. This is unbelievable. We started at the same weekend in 1998. He's a good football player. He was a, no, he was a normal guy. But, uh, you know, we are as, as, as people, as human beings, uh, we are changing ourselves and not always to the better. So his change uh, went to the worse. But this is not, I would say, a, a typical feature of our countries after our revolutions. There is also another dimension which should be taken into account and understood. Different history and different experience we developed. I suffered a lot when also Slovakia refused uh, compulsory quotas on refugees coming to Europe from Syria from Afghanistan, Pakistan, from Africa. And do you know why? I I am pretty sure that it was due to the fact that the Slovak people or people from the former Soviet or communist bloc, we had not so many or so much experience with different culture. You know, we, we were not imperialistic states. So we had a little experience with uh, people from africa or the middle east and it was uh, our it is the issue of cultural diversity of europe and it was understood very very difficult in the united states but also in berlin or in paris this is why i mentioned a while ago how happy am i now in these days that we receive people from ukraine Nobody is blaming the others. Nobody is calling for a special attention. We just do our job with, with pleasure, with honesty. And this is really very good for the future of our uh, European continent, but also transatlantic community. I met just a few hours ago with two ladies, the members of Verkhovna Rada, the parliament of Ukraine. And we spoke these issues. And I was really touched listening to them, how nice are people in Poland, in Prague, Czech Republic, in Slovakia. So again and again, everything bad comes with something good. And I believe that mutual understanding after these difficult uh, days, weeks, I'm afraid months will be even better than before.
2: Just to shift the gears a tiny little bit. Um, you you had some heartening things to say about uh, the Western transatlantic response to Russia's aggression against Ukraine. Uh, I mean, I wonder if we could sort of zoom in a little bit on the role played by the United States. You worked obviously with different U.S. presidents in the past. And from your recent public pronouncements, one could get the sense that you might be worried about you know, whether the U.S. leadership in the world is you know, steady and reliable or whether it might be slowly waning and, 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 and perhaps Europeans should, should think about, you know, alternatives. And, and, and so, so, you know, maybe if you could sort of lay out your thinking for us um, about the changing role of, of, of the United States in the world, uh, the, you know, the, the, the role that they are going to play in European security and, 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 and elsewhere and how that reverberates through, you know, strategic thinking and, in central and eastern europe.
3: Yes, I get that this question is a, a very special one. Look, uh, as usually maybe not bad but not so good news but also a good news. Not so good news maybe is that uh, expectations uh, on the United States or Biden's uh, President Biden's administration were a bit higher. Uh, we realize that it was the United States and the UK that uh, signed the Budapest memorandum in 1994 uh, cynically noticing that together with Russia but one would expect that in these days the US and UK uh, shoulder the greatest responsibility for that maybe maybe due to this fact the expectations uh, are were a bit higher at the beginning, especially when it comes to arms deliveries to Ukraine. Uh, I regret the incident uh, when uh, Poland was ready to deliver almost 40 fighters to Ukraine, but in cooperation with the U.S. administration. Till now, I do not understand why uh, the U.S. administration uh, had been so reluctant. This is maybe not bad news, but not so nice news. But there is also a, a good news. So look, uh, the Biden administration played fantastic role when it comes to sanctions, economic sanctions, personal sanctions, North Stream 2 pipeline. It was so difficult to convince German, the Germans that it should be either cancelled or, or frozen. In this respect, the U.S. administration did a good job because we are united enough. Uh, Transatlantic unity is uh, evident. A lot of people uh, were putting on the list uh, in Russia, around Russia, the sanctions are courageous. Maybe we can do even more when it comes to, to the SWIFT and decoupling of the major Russian banks, especially Sberbank, who is dealing with petrol and gas from SWIFT. Maybe we can do more when it comes to gas and oil import to Europe, even though US did something uh, vis-a-vis oil. Well, uh, there is still a space for further steps, And as I have already indicated, the issue of fighters, the issues of anti-missiles equipment, all these issues, I believe, are still on the table at our our disposal. But there is also another dimension, which uh, you have been uh, touching, Dalibor, that all eyes are on Ukraine in these days which is normal, which is, which is logical. But the problem is that uh, we uh, ignore a bit an issue of our European commitment or contribution. And I tell you why. Not only due to the fact that uh, Ukraine is the neighbor of the EU, but also to the fact that uh, the US is and will be more and more busy by China. I spoke several times with uh, John McCain, uh, either in Washington or in Bratislava, and he, he, he finished every discussion with his emphasis on China as the main challenge, the main threat in the future. In these days, I feel very strongly that it is natural. Uh, we cannot have Americans elsewhere all the time We should divide a bit uh, responsibility and the burden. We should be able to shoulder a heavier burden as Europeans. So I am not calling for an isolated European army which should duplicate NATO. I am calling for much more investments in our defense, but also to unite our European forces to create much stronger European pillar of NATO being able to operate also separately if needed, especially when it comes to our European neighborhood especially when it comes to the Middle East and our closest region, also the north of Africa look, I was just a week ago in uh, Beirut I spent four days in Beirut and uh, the situation is horrible there, there is a vacuum Mr. President uh, Obama had resigned to some extent on Syria, on the Middle East. And now people are asking what will happen vis-à-vis Ukraine, vis-à-vis potential agreement, GCPO2 agreement, which is on the horizon, the nuclear uh, agreement with, uh, with Iran. So the, the security is a very global, very global challenge or issue, and I strongly believe that the we as the EU, we should go ahead farther. I am speaking about something, about a vision of, I would say, an integrated European defense forces that should be, could be much stronger than we are together in these days, which should represent a strong, reliable European pillar of NATO. Uh,
0: Before we wrap up, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up and you already went into extensive detail, but I wonder if you can give us a little bit more detail in terms of assessing the capacity and the willingness of Europeans to move Towards that. So over the past few decades, which with each crisis in Europe's neighborhood, whether that's the Middle East or North Africa or with Russia in the eastern neighborhood, we have re- Discussed endlessly, the battle groups that don't work, the military headquarters which we don't have, the the small movement that I've seen, which to me is big for European standards, is um, the final release of or or putting together of that rapid reaction force of five thousand. I think that's a that's a landmark. Um, um, Capacity, even though it's small and modest, it can pave the way for more. So, the question, I guess, is beyond um, increasing military budget. Something again, the Americans have been bugging us with um, for decades for for very good reasons. um, How can we proceed with integrating further and with solving the problem of? How do we decide on a consensus or qualified majority voting or something in between to actually deploy forces when needed, either on the European continent or in its um, immediate vicinity, North Africa, middle east um, how how does that how do you see that working under which leadership in and what is the time frame of of that? Mm,
3: taking taking a more of a concrete shape. Mm-hmm. This question I I take as the most I would say close to my heart, but also politically politically important. Look, I had been raising such a question before the pandemic in Washington four years ago, and uh, we had a closed meeting of fifteen people. All my All my old friends from US, from both camps, from the Democratic, but also from the Republicans. Uh, We were meeting in the evening and I tried to introduce for the first time this vision of the American uh, European Army. I provoked a bit my old friends and (laughs) it was a fascinating debate because I was asked, what do you want all of a sudden? What do you want? What do you, what do you dream to achieve? And so on and so on. I am telling this just to demonstrate that this issue is not completely new for me. And when I raised the issue of the change of the qualified, uh, of unanimity in foreign policy area to go to move on to qualified majority vote, I had the feeling that I will be killed in Brussels. In these days the situation is different ladies and and Alibor. the situation is different and uh, even 2 years ago i visited i visited Anne-Gret kramp uh, karrenbauer because i believe that the lady will become the german chancellor and there will be a chance to raise such a courageous question on the relevant playground so i spent more than one hour with her and believe me then after a few months she delivered a speech in the north of germany if i'm not mistaken and i was reading for the first time in my life about conventional european military forces conventional not strategic ones in these days, I have a feeling that there is a chance to move ahead. Uh, where is where the problem lies? And you are very right that capacity uh, or, or willingness, uh, political willingness. I was taught for many years about something which is uh, uh, which is which can be uh, labeled as strategic culture. Have you heard about the strategic <laughs> European culture? I did my PhD in end, that. <laughs> <laughs> that's why the question. <laughs> at the beginning, at the beginning I, w- I was unable to grasp the issue. What does it mean? Then I learned this is about the waltz in Vienna, about good red wine <laughs> in Italy, about fantastic champagne uh, uh, on, uh, Fran- in, in Paris, uh, on Elysee. But this is, this is the, the, the game is fin- has been finished, right? Now we should uh, take a mirror and, and decide that maybe we were dreaming, but the dream the dream has finished and now we face reality. I strongly believe that in, in these days, it is much more realistic than two, three years ago. Who who will take the lead? That's the question. That's the question, because there is an asymmetry. The France is strong when it comes to defense, not speaking about strategic issues, but money are in Germany. Long story short, we need to solve this asymmetry. There is something here in my head. There is something in the heads of my friends in the Martin Center. But believe me, this is agenda number one In these days, not in these days, the last three, four years. Dalibor knows very well. This is our agenda. Tomorrow afternoon, uh, tonight I fly from uh, Vienna to Brussels. And tomorrow afternoon, we have two generals. Slovak General Matzko, Dalibor knows him, and Jamie Shea. And the issue is European defense. And we are continuing uh, with this. We as uh, think tankers, we can afford a bit more than people in, in politics. The intention, you know, look, the intention of a small Slovak politician is simple. There is no hidden agenda in Slovakia. We want to have strong transatlantic security. And it is not enough to turn every single second to Washington. It is impossible. I have full understanding why Washington is busy, will be busy with China. Look what happens around Taiwan, Hong Kong. Look what is the behavior of the Chinese politicians. Look how big, strong, economically, militarily, is China. I was in uh, Washington last time, maybe immediately before... Uh, the pandemic, and I was listening to Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney. He, had, he delivered a fantastic speech in which he described what proportion is dedicated to new, to the new technologies in China and uh, how big proportion is devoted for this intention in the United States. And the pictures, the picture was not very encouraging. A lot of money in the United States for the maintenance, but majority of the huge budget in China for technologies. So we should take into account all these uh, features and to adopt courageous decisions.
2: Prime Minister, thank you. This was this was fascinating. I think we we could do a whole episode or entire series of episodes on this question which is sometimes labelled as European strategic autonomy or or, or 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 European sovereignty. I think there are many sort of, you know, loose ends that needs need dying up in questions of how a sort of pan European structure would, would, would operate exactly and whether European governments would be willing to give up control over the actual military assets. Uh I have, you know, I have my doubts, I have my questions too, but but I think we all agree that uh there is a need for for Europeans to do more in this new geostrategic environment. And it is my hope that uh if nothing else, then then Russia's war against Ukraine have has waken up Europeans to a new reality which is very different from the sort of you know cuddly pleasant world of the of the North East in which europeans right. didn't really have to worry too much about about threats to their own security and people sort of thought that that the brazen aggression of this kind was unthinkable in the twenty first century. I think it's in a way useful to internalize that this is something that is very much thinkable and it's something we have to be planning for and and preparing for and being ready to 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 respond in kind if we are going to keep both Europe and the broader Western world safe. So so thank you for, for driving that point home. Thank
3: you. Uh,
0: I guess also one another takeaway is, um, and I think um, Prime Minister Zurinda really taught us a lesson on this, is um, leadership can shape politics and public opinion. So that's food for thought for us and for our audience. Thank you so much for joining us, Prime Minister Zurinda, from me, Julia Zorja and my friends, Giselle
1: Donnelly and
2: Dalibor Haj.
0: Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have emerged along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, ai.org. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please get in, get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod, one word. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you and goodbye.